When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Poetry Questions TPQ20, where we sit down with your favorite authors to talk about passions, process, pitfalls, and poetry. My name is Chris Margolin. Let's expand the conversation. Well, hello. Um, hi. <laughs> How are you? I am doing well. Uh, thank you so much for uh, hanging out on TPG20 with me today. Um, it's exciting. It's always exciting to talk with you. Um, so we always like to start off by saying, you know, we know who you are. I've been a fan of yours for quite a while now. Um, but our audience might be new to you, and you do have a new book uh, coming into the world in, in a handful of months here. So if you were to kind of give the bio that's not going to be featured on the back of the book and one that wouldn't be on your website... Who would you say you are? Ooh, the website thing is throwing me for a loop because actually at midnight last night, I knew they were going to announce this prize for the book. <laughs> and I thought, I really don't like my bio. You know, it's just a summary of the things that you can already see on my website. Right. Uh, so I wrote about kind of who I am. Um, the first thing I wrote about was hearing this Eric Satie composition, Vexations, performed live by a series of teenage pianists for 24 hours straight. Um, <laughs> and I got to go to this concert when I was 16 years old and it was so frustrating and so boring. And then it like <laughs> cracked open and then it was like amazing and psychedelic and then it became boring again. And it was totally life-changing. Um, and I think uh, now looking back, I can see how like, oh, I've had this obsession with attention and memory and how they work and like what what can poetry and what can art do with those things and how can they like you know you can interfere with someone's attention you can interrupt them you can distract them you can seduce them there are like all of these things that still point to the same place which is in the moment that someone is engaging with art they are forming some kind of relationship with it ideally and then when they leave the art potentially a relationship will still remain right and often it doesn't. And often what does remain is like, oh, Blackberry, 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 right? <laughs> I remember those. <laughs> that line is very iconic, but I don't think I could recite meditation at Lagunitas to you. Right. Um, you are I have no idea if I just answered your question no, or not. <laughs> no, and I, I think I think you did in the way that we're gonna that, I think you did, because you opened a couple of doors. Cause you are somebody who really you you are, in my mind, as I've kind of watched you over the last you know decade or so, you are somebody who deals heavily with process, um, and and I think that there's, I think that there really is something about you that it's not just storytelling, it's not just um, how the poetry affects you in the moment as you read, because you're not always going to remember how to recite the words, but it's also about the journey and the experience of getting there. 
mm-hmm. and I think that's you know I, obviously I want to dive into talking about midst a little bit, but you know you are someone who's always had an eye on the creative process and the journey from getting to point A to point you know maybe you know Z but it could, you know, trigger something else along the way. And there's 18 sidesteps and you, you've always been a person who's been very open about showing that all where on earth does that come from? Where does the openness about your poetics or about the experience of poetics come from? Oh, okay. This is such an interesting, these are such interesting questions. And I feel like I'm going to fumble because I haven't really tried to articulate a lot of these ideas before, but Yeah, part of it is just my family situation and my life. But I think that does have broader implications because like a lot of my life is dictated by like structures of gender and race and class and things like that. Um, So in my home, when I was growing up, I was in this very strange position looking back now where I was like surrounded by great art. So I had access to it. There was, it's hanging in my studio now. My dad passed away a couple of years ago and there was um, a Hieronymus Bosch painting, The Garden of Earthly Delights, you know, like a very complex, rich painting. That painting just hung over the landing. So you go into the house and that's the first thing you see. And yeah, there was like Frida Kahlo work on the wall. There were all kinds of books. I have a bunch of his books here. Like, yeah, Elias Canetti. Who else is here? Fahrenheit 451. 100 Years of Solitude, Gödel Escherbach, a lot of Yerzy Kaczynski. So I was exposed to like all of this great writing really young. But I was never really supported or particularly encouraged. And, and as I made art, I found and I still find that when I'm writing a good poem, for example, I enter this kind of flow state. I'm very focused and immersed in what I'm doing. I'm doing a lot of different kinds of things. And then When I get to a stopping point, I feel like, how the hell did I do that? I could never do that again. I don't understand what just happened. So I think, I feel like it comes from a place of like, hopefully not narcissism and more just sort of curiosity about like the human experience and about what creativity is, right? It's strange to do something and to do it well. And then to say like, I don't know how that happened. Well, I guess and then, is it is it more a question of how it happened or a question of if you could do it again? Do you think there's a is it a worry that you couldn't repeat it? There's a certainty that I, I couldn't repeat it mm, okay. or that whatever it is that allowed me to enter this flow state is not something that I can just reliably repeat the way that if I reliably take this ibuprofen, unless <laughs> I develop a tolerance, it's going to, you know, right. <laughs> do what it was meant to do process. Yeah. Okay. So there's this like nosiness about myself, which is, it's, it's just, it's, it's kind of a miracle, like to make a work of art, right? Like there was nothing there. And then suddenly there's something, and it's something that not only I have this relationship with, with it, where it feels like a piece of me and it feels like, I don't know, it's like my offspring kind of in a way, <laughs> but then it, it does get to go and have its own life and other people are going to form their own relationships to it. And yeah, I was just very curious about how that happened. And I felt like I had nobody to talk to about, about that, especially because, and actually, as I got older and more serious about poetry, that feeling only increased because, you know, like when you go to an MFA workshop, you hand in your work and you sit there in complete silence while people 
describe your work to you. And I think this is actually very good training. And I think, you know, if anything, it's more about learning to speak about other people's work and like right. be a generous reader who can like appreciate the strengths and weaknesses of like any kind of poem, whether or not it's the type that you make. Right. So none of this is like to denigrate that kind of workshop. But yeah, I realized like I'm looking at poetry as a time-based art and like what interests me is like, you know, people know this stuff. They acknowledge it. They acknowledge like, oh yeah, I had him like, I wrote that poem really late at night and my kid kept me up all night screaming. And so I was like really tired. And then I was like channeling that into the poem. And so they, they can like identify an ingredient mm -hmm. of the process. Um, like watching the footnotes in action. Like, yeah, but right. I think it's only by really watching someone work that you, there, there's a lot of that is unsaid in the process. Right. And often like it's subconscious, right. It's only actually like the poems that I have in myths, which we can explain what it is. But like when I go back and look at a poem and remember where it came from, because I've forgotten, right. I'm like, oh, wow. It truly like it would not have existed if I hadn't had these specific experiences, which I then took like these elements from and then was able to tie them together in this specific way. Like it really makes the whole poem feel like a unified whole that includes its kind of like past selves rather than taking the current state and like making a static sculpture of it and saying like, yeah, that's the poem. <laughs> it's all the different uh, Google uh, history versions of, uh, of whatever document you're writing. Yeah. I mean, so then let's talk about midst. So we have this, this concept that is all about the process. So where I guess, you know, how would you describe it? And, you know, where, where did the idea kind of, what was kind of the catalyst for the idea? And, uh, and what is it now? Yeah, the catalyst for the idea was writing poems and thinking, how the fuck did I do that? And then eventually, I didn't really study poetry and wasn't exposed to a ton of, you know, sort of a network of peers writing poems and asking for feedback until grad school. Right. But once I started doing that, I was like, oh, how the hell did he do that? You know, there were people making like really amazing things that were so different from what I was working on. You know, Chessie Normiles, a uh, great poet, her first book, um, I won't butcher the title, Great Wall, Great Party. I'm not saying it right. Should I look it up? <laughs> no, correct it. I'll correct it in notes. We got this. <laughs> um, yeah, Chessie Normile writes these like really, really like, sprightly flexible like funny but like very seriously focused on kind of like who we are and what we're doing here poems and she does it with this kind of she does absolutely like gymnastic things with the way that she manipulates images and thoughts and she makes it look like she's just chatting to you right and when i read that i'm like whoa how'd you get there that's, yeah, it's finding that comfortable conversation to have as like from page to poet or page to poet is really nice. When it, it would be such a, it would give me such a different understanding of the work. For example, if like, oh, it, the work just kind of comes out that way. She goes, she tightens a few things up or, you know, I'm sure Chessie doesn't do this, but <laughs> a poet could very well write a like heavily researched essay about like 
some of the concepts that she right covers in her book and then like trim that essay down and down and down until it becomes a poem like i'm mm-hmm. sure there's a poet out there who works that way that actually sounds um, fascinating i love writing research papers so to me that sounds like a really cool idea <laughs> well and if we get enough people on midst then it's like hey there's this pool of data we can start looking at like all kinds of all kinds of questions that we couldn't ask before about how process and product are related in writing yeah so how do you pull back the layers on midst? What's what makes what makes it for you? What makes it so incredible? Like, why do I care about it? Well, I think I think the, the I guess I'll phrase it is what what is the what is the one piece of mitts that you feel most proud of? Like, what are you what are you super excited that you're able to expose to the world about poetry uh, from from midst? Ooh. Yeah, I mean, very, speaking very generally, I think just seeing that it is a process that involves a lot of mistakes and a lot of failures and a lot of like missteps and that that is not only, you know, hey, it happens, it happens to all of us, but like you cannot write anything without producing things that shouldn't be there, Ooh, right? I like um, that. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe someone can, I don't know. Um, but I think having this like corpus of very diverse writers, all kind of needing to produce something and then work with it in some way in order to create what they are trying to right? Nothing. It doesn't just like come out perfectly formed. Although I will say there are people who do have work on midst that essentially came out perfectly formed and it, that makes me feel very jealous. So it's, it's dangerous. The, uh, the, the uneditables. There's also, did you see Wu Sung's poem? I am not sure. That's, I mean, my personal thing that I'm the most excited about is um, at the residency where I wrote my upcoming book, Fixations, um, there was a Korean poet, Wu Sung Son, who's also a photographer. Um, he's really great. And he agreed to try midst. And so he wrote a poem in Hangul. And then when I went to grad school, one of my classmates, Haji Choi, is a translator. And so oh, you get to see him writing this poem that also includes some English, but is like mostly not in English. Right. And then you see the process of Haji trying to like translate this poem, which in some ways is even more fascinating to me than watching the original writing. That's, that's incredible. I'll definitely have to go look at that because I just, I, I had just actually put out a call for like to talk with more translators. Cause I find the process so fascinating, but I don't know enough about it. Um, and I really want to know, I want to get inside the translator's mind. I find that, I find that so exciting to see how different people, you know, interpret things just slightly different enough that it it almost you know it could change the avenue of the poem if you uh you know if you needed it to and i i'm really so curious about the art of translation i think it's just a fascinating fascinating thing well if you ever (laughs) i mean so my goal there's all this soft there are a million things happening so you know it's everything's easier said than done but i would love to have like at least one representative of each language where poets are working who is like someone like Jen Benka who just knows a lot of people and right. who can like help get the word out and then 
essentially, you know, curate a selection of a dozen poets who are writing in French right now and then translate each of those. Um, That'd be amazing. I think and then that'd be so cool. Well, and if we work together, it's like, then you could interview the translator. There we go. And I, I will say it was, it was really to see the list of people I had, I mean, we got up to, you know, 40, 50 names on a list um, just based on like putting out a tweet saying, you know, let me know if you're available and the amount of translators who are out there. And it's really, what's really interesting is to see which lanes they've chosen, um, hmm. you know, who, who sticks to very, very formal, you know, poetics or who is willing to kind of, you know, um, because you know, it doesn't seem to be generational necessarily of who's like willing to, you know, go into more modern day poetics. Uh, it's just interesting that there are so many lanes to translation. Um, it's just a cool art form to me. And for some reason these days, I'm, I'm really, I'm really invested in looking at translation. So we'll definitely have to chat about this a little bit more because I, I built quite a quick Rolodex and I, I'm still going through it all. And I'm amazed at what is out there. Um, so yeah. I mean, I think we know why this is happening too, right? It's yeah. just, it feels like, oh, in my field, this is the way that like I fight against colonialism <laughs> because like, I don't want to just have a bunch of American poets who are all reading each other's poems. Oh my God. <laughs> so um, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, what is new for you in this world of poetry, which is a brand new contest that you have uh, captured the prize, uh, a book coming out uh, in, in the spring of 23. So you've got some, some fun things going on. Um, where does vexations, we kind of got the start of vexations uh, when you were, you know, 16 and, and sitting through a 24 hour <laughs> marathon experience. But when did, uh, when did you start vexations? When did the writing process for it start? It actually started away from Sati. And then I ended up coming back to that experience oh. um, and realizing like, oh, this is what I need. Um, so it started. Yeah. My first year or two in grad school, I went to the Missioner Center and it's a really great place if you can be kind of self-directed because you truly do just receive this sort of like time and space to write the thing that every writer needs. That's exactly what you get. Um, and it allowed me to not only write, but to then take that extra time that for me is often the most exciting time where I then look at all these things that I've made that I don't know how I really made them, but like clearly they all came from me and have something to do with each other. And I say, all right, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> and um, one of the things that happened was I noticed like, God, I keep writing about horses. Why do I have all these horses in my poems? I'm not like a horse person. Um, and I wrote this five page long poem, which at the time was the longest poem I'd ever written called like Equus. <laughs> um, it's called Equus and it was called that for a long time. And then I really liked what it was doing and it was dealing, you know, it's essentially like those five pages are in the final text of vexations, but yeah, I guess it started from a place of paying attention to what I was paying attention to. And then when, when I found that what I was paying attention to kind of like confused and surprised me, rather than rejecting it, right? Because like, oh, that's not really my interest. It's just like, <laughs> 
So there are these strange games that I have to play with my attention, right? But it's like, okay, well, I know I, I must be interested in all this stuff for a reason. It's coming up for a reason. And like, I wouldn't be being true to myself as an artist if I didn't like investigate what these reasons are. Yes. Um, and oh, I also was in a workshop with someone who wrote a poem that I thought was really wonderful. Uh, I think this was the workshop where I had Equus. And the instructor said about their poem, you know, I never say this, but there should be more of this. Like, you should keep writing this poem. Like, I think this could be a book. And I was sitting there and I was like, no, I think this could be a book. (laughs) So, you know, a little of that, like, competitive spirit. Anyway, and I already had ideas about sound and, like, interdisciplinarity. And I still very deeply want to make kind of installations, like, make spaces that usually are more reserved for visual artists that have visual and sonic and textual elements and allow the reader to really like experience vexations as this environment that is fluid and dynamic rather than experiencing it as text on a page. So I wrote vexations at a residency and in my application for the residency, I told them like, this is an installation piece, Mm. but I'll write the text. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Um, the idea that that text was it, it was almost secondary to the well, it is secondary to the experience in that way. It's it's this is the insula- installation. There will be a text as well. Yeah, well, even like in its current state, uh, it might even say this in the back of the book. I wrote an author's note. Like it, it is a poem, and it's a book length poem, and I would never tell anybody not to read it that way. And I think if these poets and editors who I wildly admire are reading it that way and saying that it works, then like. I fully accept it. I just think, you know, in the same way that you can have a poem that works and then the midst timeline is this other thing that's very interesting. I think it's sort of like one could also approach vexations as a text score. Do you know what a text mm-hmm. score is? Um, I feel like this is like a new concept that I didn't know about until recently. I'm not sure. Well, I might get it wrong. So in <laughs> while I was in grad school also, uh, I did this residency with a bunch of experimental composers um and they introduced me into the idea of the text score which is essentially right rather than a score that has a staff and a bunch of musical notations on it and the performer who's performing the piece you've composed is reading the music and then doing what's written on the page instead of that sheet music it's a text and the text could be literally anything um like yoga ono's grapefruit Right, those right. are text scores but yeah so i guess it's all it's it's almost like it's operating as a book but then also i i think of it in these modes that are more like dynamic and more time-based and more space-based yeah. like an installation or like oh these are performance instructions so i'm gonna um <laughs> making this up oh i'm gonna do a show in chicago and i'm gonna stand on one side of the stage and there's going to be a dancer and the dancer is going to like perform the movements of the poem as they interpret them. Right. Um, uh, anyway, I just figured out your next uh, tour. Here's your, uh... Oh my God. I have like so many ideas and they're all so infeasible. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. Then I guess, I guess maybe the question is if you were to give the, if you were to give kind of the, you know, the reader advice on, on how to read this. Uh, so, so how should we read vexations? 
what should our experience be? That's such an interesting question because I feel like as a writer, you're really told to that Never when the work is published, it's out of your hands. I know. You know? Now I want to know what, see, and that's the thing. I want to know what each of these installations are like. I want to know as I'm going through this, what, what I should, uh, what you picture. Okay. The ideal, my favorite idea. I have two favorite ideas right now. One, I'm going to definitely be able to do at least once. The other, eh. one is just, it's performed live with a pianist mm. and the entire text is read out loud and everybody is just comfortably lying on the floor with a sleeping bag with a pillow. And um, that could be, I think to do that in a way that would really like honor the original sort of inciting experience, it'd be fun to like loop things the way that the piano piece by Eric Satie loops. And if he says to loop it 840 times, this might've been a joke. <laughs> so we would just be looping things for 24 hours and you could yeah. kind of come and go as you please and ideally like spend the night there. Um, cool. The other idea is a dead mall or a dead school, something that has the architecture that accommodates kind of like smaller individual rooms, hallways, a PA system, overhead lighting, a sort of like fluid architecture, right? Rather than just like funneling you into one space and trapping you there. So if I had access to a space like this and money, <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, then it's kind of like, oh, well, how many ways can I activate this space to bring in some aspect of the world of the poem? And the poem deals a lot with empathy and deals a lot with these sort of like blurry edges of the self. And so I think not only would like, you know, the text of vexations is playing over the PA system or whatever, but like every room in this mall, instead of being a store, is now an artist who's like commissioned to make work there for a certain period of time, perhaps in response to the text or perhaps not, perhaps it's just like, this is this artist's studio and we're gonna like put these artists into conversation with each other and into conversation with the book. You know, the mall directory could have like a passage from the life of plants that like really inspired me while I was writing it you know, but like it didn't make it into the book because right. research often doesn't. See, so, yeah, this is, this is cool. And I think, you know, I think the, uh, the greater Northwest area is definitely, uh, we've got a lot of broken down schools and broken down buildings. That could be a, could be something for this. I mean, so, yeah, I, you know, hey, <laughs> hey, literary arts, uh, if you're listening, <laughs> listen, all I need is a space. There you go. <laughs> Awesome. Well, uh, as we kind of start to to wrap things up, who are you excited about that's out there? Who are you reading right now that you're kind of just loving? I know that I'm supposed to. Question. I'm supposed to answer this question in a way question. that, like, uh, in, in a way that like lifts others up who are like my peers in the literary community. But like, that's not the truth. The truth is, I'm getting really into this guy, Paolo Soleri. I have a few books. Here's the like E-flux looking book, but there's also this like Scientology looking book. <laughs> so, you know, he walks in a lot of circles. Uh, Soleri was an architect who focused on miniaturization and on building these things he called arcologies, which are like um, cities that are dense, human humanistic in their design and much more ecologically sound than what we have now. Right. right. 
rather than these like sprawling megalopolises <laughs> that require us to then use all of these inefficient vehicles that like consume a lot of resources just to transport people and goods. He, he designs these like very intricate miniaturized spaces. Sweet. So that's, that's what's inspiring me right now. I, that's perfect. Cause sometimes it's not just poetry that keeps us going. So that is fantastic. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for hanging out on TPQ 20 today. Uh, we look forward to vexations in the spring of 2023. Um, and we look forward to sending people to mitts and always watching what you do. So thank you so much for hanging out with us. Thank you. I'm sorry for all the rambling. Don't be at all. This was perfect. Thank you so much. Seriously, this was great. <laughs> um, okay, cool. Sorry. I'm shy. Yeah. None no, of your business. That's wonderful. Have a great rest You should of just cut night. out the entire interview, but leave this part where I'm apologizing and being really embarrassed. <laughs> It'll be trailer for a uh, trailer for the season. <laughs> uh, um, no. Uh. <laughs> awesome. I will talk to you soon. Have a great rest of the night. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Poetry Questions TPQ20. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe. See you next week.